Straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki. Today I'm joined by Dr. James Arcadi and Dr. J.T. Turner to discuss the new T.N.T. Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology. We ask the obvious question, what is analytic theology? Then we consider some angry tweets about the project of analytic theology, and we offer various replies. This might be the most sarcastic episode I've recorded, but I guarantee that you will come away with a better understanding of analytic theology and the different kinds of topics that analytic theologians are working on. In the future, I'm going to be recording episodes with other contributors to the handbook, so keep an eye out for those. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here's JT, James, and I chatting about analytic theology. Enjoy. So I am here with James Arcadi and J.T. Turner. So we're going to be talking about the new T.N.T. Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology. So this is a handbook that they just edited. Now, in order to get the audience um, you know, kind of used to your voices, why don't you each say a little bit about yourself? So, J.T., you've been on the show before, um, so I'll have James. Why don't you go first? Yeah, great. Thanks, uh, Ryan, for having us on the show here. Um, appreciate it. Um, yeah, I'm James Arcadi. I teach systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and um, uh, did a PhD under Oliver Crisp at the University of Bristol, and then a postdoc also with Oliver Crisp uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is where JT and I connected. And actually, this project was kind of uh, was kind of started there. So that's how how things got started for us. Yeah, good. And I'm. Uh J.T. Turner, I, thanks for having me back on the show there, Ryan. I'm, I guess I didn't blow it too badly. Or maybe it's because I'm now riding sidecar with uh, uh, the, the Reverend Dr. Arcadi here that I get to come back on the show because we've done this cool book. But anyway, I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Anderson University in South Carolina. Uh, I did my Ph.D. at uh, University of Edinburgh New College under David Ferguson who happens to be one of our contributors in the book. And uh, yeah, as James just said, this project got started while we were both postdocs out at Fuller uh, Seminary in Pasadena, California. So yeah, it's been four years of long, hard work, but good work. It's good because like I have at this point read almost the entire handbook and it's there's a lot of really good stuff in it. Cool. So let's get to the first like really big question here on the table. We have to ask this, like just what is analytic theology? I always defer to James on this since he wrote <laughs> the introduction, so... <laughs> <laughs> I think as I tried to say in the introduction, that I think it's, we, we kind of take a bit of an expansive or sort of deflationary account of what analytic theology is. So basically, we sort of think of uh, analytic theology as just theology done in conversation with or using the tools of or with the sensibilities of analytic philosophy. And that's where the analytic in analytic theology comes from. And uh, say in the introduction there a, a little bit, I kind of think that theology has always been done in some kind of conversation with philosophy over the course of uh, over the course of the church's history and um, analytic philosophy has just been a bit of an underutilized conversation partner perhaps uh, in the last century or so but analytic theology is a newish movement trying to, to remedy that and, and bring analytic philosophical again tools methodologies sensibilities into conversation with theology JT you have anything to add to that no, I mean, that's exactly the sort of thing that I tell even my own students uh, when I'm teaching classes that might be considered analytic theology classes here is that there's no real mystery behind what we're doing. We're doing, you know, we're thinking about God and things in relation to God by using 
a particular set of philosophical tools, and we pull that from the contemporary analytic tradition, not to be confused with, say, the analytic tradition of J, you know, AJA or the logical positivists or things like that. So that's, I mean, it's really as simple as that. So are you saying that analytic philosophy didn't end with the Vienna Circle in the early <laughs> 20, late 20th century? I am saying that. It's crazy, and I know a lot of people out there aren't aware of this, but mm. right, yes, the, there's an entire analytic philosophical tradition still going that, believe it or not, doesn't think the young Wittgenstein got things right or that logical positivism is true and so on, so on, so on. I mean, controversial statements always made on this show, so <laughs> there we go, right off the bat, within five go. minutes, the most controversial statement on the internet. All right, so I got so I got some other things here for you. So, so various people listening at this point, they're probably going to be, you know, trying to figure out like why should I bother getting this handbook? Like why should I be bothered buying books in general, I guess, but but like analytic theology, it faces a lot of different objections. And so, I'm thinking like maybe if you guys could address some of these objections and then explain how this handbook kind of dispels some of these concerns, that might kind of help people get motivated to get this thing. So, here's the first objection to analytic theology. And so it just goes like this. So, analytic theology is like the Brexit wing of theology. It has no interest in history or the Christian tradition. So how would you guys respond to an objection like that? I mean, if I might, I, I think I would respond first by saying uh, an objector like that probably hasn't read very much analytic theology. Um, and so I would invite the objector to read some analytic theology before making an objection like that. Um, and, I, and I think that when one does that, one sees that uh, many of the the first practitioners, you might uh, say, of analytic theology, maybe calling it anachronistically analytic theology, were in fact those who were, were deeply concerned with the history of philosophy, the history of theology, especially those who were interested in medieval scholasticism. I'm thinking of Eleanor Stump and Marilyn McCord Adams, Richard Cross, Norman Kretzmann, maybe quite my colleagues, uh, some first generation or so, or near second generation analytic uh, theologians who were bringing the tools of analytic philosophical reflection to bear on some of these thorny theological issues from medieval scholasticism on Trinity, Incarnation, uh, Eucharist, etc. In, in our volume, we have uh, Catherine Rogers writing on uh, on the issue of God's omnipotence, and she puts, puts forth an Anselmian view of God's uh, omnipotence there. And one of my favorite lines in the entire book is at the very top of her references, where she writes... All translations in this chapter are my own. And then she cites all like the various, you know, uh, primary sources from, from Anselm. So I think, well, here's a, here's a woman, a fantastic scholar who has been engaged in detailed Anselm, uh, research on Anselm in his historical context, in his philosophy, and yet is as comfortable using, you know, modal metaphysics or, or what have you to try to explicate what it is that Anselm was saying about something like uh, God's uh, omnipotence. And so I think this and, and other examples as well in the volume that maybe JT can point to show that many analytic theologians are very concerned with reading historical figures in their context, doing so appropriately, and seeing how theology has been derived from our, our theological ancestors. Oh, sure. I mean, there's it's not just limited to appeals to medieval scholarship. There's papers that refer to church fathers and more ancient uh, Christian theologians. I mean, your, your own chapter, Ryan, does this on classical theism. Uh, we have people who are doing or taking into account historical biblical work. So the idea of like, what's the Bible actually doing, right? So actually leaning hard on biblical scholarship, which I mean, is a historical move. I mean, I'm doing this in the volume in my own paper there. Let's see, we've got included in the book 
an entire chapter on just exactly what should Christian tradition's role be in the analytic theological process. Now, here's what we don't do. We don't have any of these chapters making dogmatic claims about this is the way things ought to be. We have people presenting arguments for potentially the way things should be. Yeah, I mean, I take it that our inclusion of a variety of different approaches to the analytic theological enterprise, whether or not super historical or maybe just thinking about, you know, theological claims in purely contemporary terms, what we're saying is that there's a, a wide range of ways of doing analytic theology and thinking about theology using analytic philosophical tools and that uh, history's got its place in there. It's super important, but it's, we're, we're not going to come shouting at somebody from the rooftops that things must, must be done in a certain way. We wanted arguments to be presented. And I, I mean, again, uh, just to restate what James already did, I mean, folks that are making these complaints, they just simply have, I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired of it. They just, ha- they just haven't read. I don't know if you heard me sigh when you asked that question. I, I, it's just obvious to me that these people haven't read. Look, anybody who hasn't, Anybody who reads Tim Paul, for example, on the Incarnation doesn't realize, I mean, there's just no way you can come away from that paper, any of his work, and think, oh, this guy doesn't know church history. No, no, this guy knows the ecumenical councils better than you do. I mean, he's, he's memorized about all of them. So I just, this whole claim that they're not thinking in historical terms is just so... Oh, how do I say this politely? Uh, ign- ignorant? I mean, I don't know what else to say. I'm exasperated. You can tell I'm exasperated at this point. This, this just, is turning I'm into just, therapy here. A little yeah, bit yeah, exactly. I'm sorry to all your cathartic. listeners. I'm annoyed. Yeah. It's just well, not true. I, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, okay. So sure, like we can say a bunch of the like first generation of analytic theologians. I mean, yes, they were like the ones editing volumes like the Cambridge Companion to Aquinas. Sure. Uh, and they were the ones like translating like Occam's work into English and, you know, doing this kind of stuff. Right. But that's not real historical engagement, though, right? I mean, that's no. not real. You know, so yeah. I think there's something really like serious to this objection. You know, <laughs> and, and, like, and if I might, I mean, to, to, to the credit, I think that there are certainly instances of academic research that I might call analytic theology um, that is less concerned with tradition and history, and what have you. Sure. I can think you can point to some of Swinburne's work. I think you can point to some of Plantinga's work, mm-hmm. uh, especially early on. That that was, uh, I mean, I, I, caution, I caution to say that, but a little bit historically naive, perhaps, in terms of utilizing some of the concepts and terms uh, yeah. that that were in play in the history of tradition, but without any kind of you know concern for that sort of thing. There are some examples uh, of that, I, I believe, that are out there. I sure. do think that on the whole, though, and I hope our, our uh, volume is representative of more of a majority position in analytic theology, that there is much more historical sensitivity than a few sort of like token examples might, uh, might give you. Yeah, and the larger point would be this, is there's just nothing endemic in the analytic process itself that divorces itself from the consideration of history. Like, I mean, so for those complaining, you know, about this, then I'm like, okay, then come do the historical work. There's just nothing there's just nothing in the method that rules out taking history seriously. And in fact, as James rightly said, I think the majority position nowadays is that to do good analytic work, you will have to take serious consideration of historical context, the ways languages and ideas shift over time and that sort of thing. I mean, that's, but that's all part of the intellectual enterprise. There's nothing that rules it out that's in the analytic mode, at least as far as I can tell. 
maybe we'll we'll allow people to push back at some point and say something about the very like method of doing analytic theology entails that you know these things. But I don't know yeah. here's another here's another objection though uh, that they get. So I want to get your guys' take on this. So here's this how this one goes. It says no serious minded person is interested in analytic theology. It has no takers amongst the youth except for a few young male nerds. Which is to be expected because it's the kind of trendy theological nihilism that only caters to adolescent minds. So, like, how would you, like, you know, address a, an objection like that? James, you're just so much more <laughs> eloquent than me on things like this. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to take it. Um, I don't know how young I am anymore, although I kind of appreciate yeah. being referred to as such. Probably male nerd is an apt description of... Uh, oh, I'm totally uh, a nerd. This guy has uh, no idea how nerdy I am. <laughs> um, yeah. But in terms of, uh, I'm not quite sure what a serious-minded person is, but I take that, you know, there's a certain academic seriousness to certain locations in the world, to certain publishers in the world and that sort of thing who are interested in doing, you know, good quality academic work. And I think we see examples of analytic theology being done in, I, I guess, what one might say, serious places, whether that's T&T Clark, for instance, as a great reputable uh, publisher, like where a volume comes out, or, or Oxford, the Oxford Studies in Analytic Theology, or Routledge, and, and JT is co-editing this series in the Routledge Studies in Analytic and Systematic Theology. It, these are serious outlets for academic work. I think of the Logos Institute at St. Andrews. I, I would take St. Andrews to be a fairly serious uh, educational enterprise there. We have analytic theologians at Oxford. I think of uh, Bill Wood and other in, uh, institutions across North America. I mean, I, I think my own institution, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and Fuller, where we once were, are serious institutions of American evangelicalism, global evangelicalism as well. University of Notre Dame, which housed the Center for Philosophy of Religion, which in many ways was a location that kind of gave some birth to the analytic theologi- uh, theological movement. Um, I, I take York, York Notre- has a new program. Yeah, I take uh, University of Helsinki's got at least a few. I mean, yeah, but we don't take ourselves seriously here in Helsinki, so, I yeah. mean... <laughs> uh, and and the, the uh, comment about it just being young male nerds is empirically false. We have female contributors in the handbook, and we have Sarah Coakley, who is like one of the best female theologians alive today, maybe the best, giving us a ringing endorsement on the handbook. So... I love I just, her blurb on the back of our it's book. Amazing. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Read, read her. Is there like a section of the blurb that like really stands out to you? I mean, I'll just read the whole thing. There you yeah, go. Yeah. The project. This is Sarah Cookley, and I can't do a Sarah Cookley impersonation because her accent is. No, she really, tried. It's mellifluous. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, it is. It is just really it sounds wonderful. So she says the project of analytic theology is still young and developing, and that's why this compendium of essays is so fresh and energizing, conjoining biblical, theological, and philosophical insights. Emerging young scholars join hands with senior professors. That's a great line. I love it. To chart what it means to reconsider classic Christian doctrine and ethics in the face of the most demanding contemporary challenges, whether philosophical, scientific, or social. I mean, that's, I, I just, I love that. I and mean, so this is a ringing endorsement from someone who held a chair at Cambridge, uh, you know, a, a wonderful scholar. Uh, and I would take her to be a very serious scholar, in fact, as well. So yeah. I, I don't know. This objection, again, seems to, to, to belie a bit of a uh, lack of familiarity with analytic theology, in my mind. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay. So let's go on to the next one then. So here's another objection that I I hear quite a lot. This is very analytic of you to do, you know, just like, hey, define this thing and then here Mm -hmm. are like five objections. Exactly. Because that's, you know, that's what we're doing. That's how we roll. So yeah. So so here's um, here's this other objection, which I get quite often. And so it's it's like, there's just this common accusation that analytic theology just does not care about scripture, just doesn't care about the Bible. So what do you guys think about that? Because I mean, I personally, I know I don't care about the Bible. I never quote scripture (laughs) in my own work. So... Hey, yeah. I, you know, I've seen you wear like Slayer shirts, Ryan. We all know you, you're surely not in league with Jesus, right? No, mm-hmm. I'm kidding. Mm-hmm. I'm kidding. Uh, anyway, um, on a more serious note. Yeah, so this objection, so I, I um, want to give some credence to the objection, namely that it could be the case that some analytic theologic, theological programs that are both now and in the past have paid insufficient attention to the biblical uh, witness and the biblical studies guild generally. But I don't know that that's a problem that's endemic to analytic theology, certainly not the mode of investigation and inquiry. And it's not, as far as I can tell, any different than the problems that infect, say, other theological guilds. I mean, let's just take what it is to be an image bearer of God. I mean, it is and of course I would say this because I deal with this kind of work myself in my own work, but it is annoying to me how many theologians, both analytic and not, don't refer to what has been largely a consensus in the last 50-odd years for what the ancient Near Eastern context of uh, the image of God and image, divine image bearing would have meant. James has heard this too many times <laughs> from me. But that's just one example where I keep, you know, my people who read my work are probably, you know, sick of me saying how much and how important it is for theologians of all stripes to pay closer attention to the biblical witness in the same way that we consistently defer to sciences to to inform our theological inquiry insofar as they run into each other. I think we need to do the same thing for our academic brothers and sisters in the Biblical Studies Guild. I Because I'm not a an expert in New Testament and Hebrew Bible, I mean, I can do okay, but I've got to lean on experts. My expertise is in other areas. And so insofar as that's a problem with analytic theology, it's a problem that infects uh, most theological guilds, as far as I can tell. And it has nothing to do with the analytic mode. I mean, not at all. In fact, I think if I've done anything with my work, which wouldn't be a whole lot, but if I did anything with my work, then I've shown that you can push those two things together, take seriously the biblical witness, and do biblically motivated analytic theology. And I think just kind of uh, uh, going off of what JT was saying here, too, it, this was something we were trying to be sensitive to in the volume, and so we did encourage some of our contributors to engage with, with Scripture in a robust fashion, and, and, and many did. And so I'm thinking of Dan Howard Snyder and Dan McCunna's um, essay on faith, and yeah. they do a lovely kind of walking through of the concept of pistis in faith in the book, in the Gospel of Mark, um, or Hilary Yancey's essay on disability. Uh, yeah. She has some great little studies of some vignettes in Luke and other aspects of the New Testament that, that you know, highlight the theological point that she's trying to make in that chapter. So I, I hope that this volume shows that scripture can be integrated well into analytic theology, um, just as much as it can be into any other uh, theological enterprise. No, fair enough. So I've got um, another objection that I want you guys to consider. And so this is one that I get every now and then. And like this one, like it really surprises me when I see it. And in fact, it actually really annoys me sometimes too. So sometimes people will say that analytic theology just has like no interest in science. And I even had someone say this to me after I told them that I was going to be hosting a workshop that was fully funded by the Higgs Center for Theoretical Physics. Mm. And so I was just like, I just 
I, like, what are you talking about? So, I, so, but, but it's, it's a common one though that, that I've seen. And I remember, I think, <laughs> being at a workshop at a, I was, I remember being at a seminar in uh, Edinburgh. Uh, I think it was JT who was during your first year of the PhD and the moderator making a claim like this. So, like, it's, it's one that pops up every now and then. So, what do you guys think about, like, this objection? Like, is it really true that analytic theology has, like, no interest in science? No. I mean, as I alluded to earlier, I think, very often, analytic theologians, as, as much as any other theologian, defers when their areas of interest overlap, typically defers to the sciences. Now, here's what analytic theologians will do if they think there are good philosophical reasons to find a particular scientific view incoherent, well, they'll mount arguments against that scientific theory. I mean, that seems to me perfectly credible, but that's not not taking science seriously. Uh, that, that is to take science seriously. That's how analytic folks typically work. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I would have to know a little bit more about what this person or objectors were referring to, because I, I can't, I, I don't know of any examples of somebody who's not taking science seriously. And if I might just point to some examples in this volume that we're we're, right. we're hawking Bingo. right here. So I'm thinking of Benedict Gokey's essay on philosophy of science, um, Aku Wiesla's essay on analytic theology and science, and sort of like the ways in which um, sort of experimental philosophy and experimental scientific research can be incorporated into theological um, arguments. Uh, I'm thinking of Andrew Loke's essay on creation ex nihilo, which is very comfortable dealing with some contemporary issues in, in science and the philosophy of science as well. So that, I mean, there's, there's some yeah. concrete examples examples here within this volume that, that show, you know, scientific inquiry as being a, a, a viable and valuable source of, uh, of data when it comes to making theological arguments and, and conclusions. And I think in some sense, there's a little bit of a, um, uh, a harmony, perhaps, in some of the methodology that an analytic theologian slash analytic philosopher might uh, engage in with respect to how science goes about their their, their projects. That seems to me like analytics, analytics, broadly speaking, are very comfortable with like hypotheses, like here's a problem or a challenge. What about this answer? Let me kind of throw it out there and see where it goes and and test it. Test it using scripture. Test it using scripture uh, tradition. Test it using rigorous argumentation. And if it comes out that that hypothesis doesn't work, it's like, okay, well, back to the drawing board and let's try again, which, which seems very much like what scientists I know do all the time. Yeah, not for nothing, just to plug one of our contributors, Joanna Liedenhag, she's got just now published an entire, I think, special edition or something of modern theology. I think it's open access, which uh, pertains to science-engaged theology, and she's an analytic theologian. I mean, so yeah, I mean, just, just right there, it's just empirically false that we're not interested in science. Uh, not every area of interest in research has to do with science, I guess. Uh, like if I'm talking about the doctrine of God, I'm not going to make reference to physics. I mean, I might. Um, I mean, I think, Ryan, you're doing work on times being a constituent of God or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, that might get into it, right? But it's not required when we're doing doctrine of God to sort of defer to physics, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And then most of the time when I talk to different physicists, um, so for instance, when I, I wanted to do um, a workshop with the Higgs Center, on what is time. And they were scared by that question. They said, we, we don't know what time is. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll have to change the topic to something else because it's not really a physics question. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, so, so yeah. So like, I think there are some theological topics that do lend themselves to more engagement with science. And then there's other topics that just don't. And I don't see what the big deal would be in those cases of just not engaging with science because there's, there's just wouldn't be room for it to do so. But yeah, like you guys pointed out, there's a bunch of different chapters that do engage with it and that are explicitly on the topic of different scientific disciplines uh, in this handbook. So there we go. So I've got one final objection uh, for you, and this one's a bit more personal. So 
Sometimes people complain that analytic theology has no interest in faith or practice. So like it has nothing to do with what, what people are actually concerned with, um, like the average person in church. Like it's not what they would really care about. So I don't know, what, what do you guys think of this kind of complaint? Sure, and it's a fair complaint, I think, to make uh, towards any academic theology. The, the, the ivory tower of theology can get too divorced at times from the pew. And whether that is ivory tower theology of any sort of stripe, um, it, it, can, it can be liable to an objection uh, like this. And, it, and it, takes, it takes work. It takes work for the, the, pra- the academic practitioner to be able to understand how to translate his or her ideas into a manner that you know, the faithful can actually utilize and, and engage in. Again, looking at the book, one way we have tried to, to bridge that a little bit is to to, to uh, invite some chapters, invite some writing on some uh, some standard topics within faith and practice. So I'm thinking here of my chapter on the doctrine of the Eucharist, which is an area of study for me. This is a, a practice in Christianity that most Christians practice every single Sunday. Or we have a chapter on baptism as well, the entrance right into the Christian uh, church uh, that, that needs significant theological as well as practical reflection. But even some maybe underexplored topics within theology, uh, we have a, a chapter from the late David Eford on um, on uh, analytic theology and spirituality, uh, which I think is a really helpful and interesting um, paper. Uh, as well as even we mentioned Joanna Liedenhag, she's writing on charismatic gifts. Um, and I, I think, and we kind of, you know, had to put her up to this one. I think this is the only piece of analytic theology written on charismatic gifts. But that's a very, you know, pressing theological issue and personal issue for many constituents of the the Christian tradition presently and, and around the globe as well. And so um, I guess I want to like, accept that sometimes there is that objection, but you know, we're trying here in the volume and in uh, conversation with other analytic theologians to keep pushing theology not to be remaining in the ivory tower, but to make some impact for people in their own personal lives as well as in the church. Yeah, and not for nothing. I mean, um, you know, our project out at Fuller when we were out there was motivated in part by influencing local church congregations. So we had pastoral colloquiums and that sort of thing associated with the project. And the reason I'm bringing that up is, you know, Oliver Crisp might be the biggest name in analytic theology right now, and he's a churchman. And James, who we're talking with right now, James Arcati, is a churchman. Like, he's an actual, you know, minister of the gospel involved in local church ministry, concerned about the family of God. I'm a church, I'm a churchman. I, you know, I'm one of the reasons that Bethany, my wife and I decided that we wanted to end up where we are, Anderson, South Carolina, is because we had a church home here that is family to us. I mean, church life is just central to what we're doing. And when I come into the office on a given morning and am doing my theological work and philosophical work, I'm always at the front of my mind is, what's this going to do for my fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus? Like, that's the whole point, uh, at least for me. Now, not every analytic theologian is going to be that way. Um, I don't even think every analytic theologian is a Christian, and that's, you know, that's fine. Um, but at least as far as the Christian is concerned, I don't, it, I, there's just so many people who, in in the guild who are church people who are doing it because they think it's helpful to the church, even if not immediately uh, in the sort of trickle down sort of sense that academic work typically is. I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, a lot of the topics that I do uh, that I focus on are ones that kids in my youth group uh, when I was a youth minister were asking me. Right. Um, so like a lot of the stuff on like, how do I understand the nature of God? I mean, that really was just excited teenagers going, this makes no sense. Help me understand it. And yeah. like, okay. And so a lot of that really did push me to go like, okay, let's get this master's degree. Okay. Let's get this PhD. All right. Now we got to figure out how to like popularize this stuff. Right. And then all the work on God and emotion that I did, that one, 
that was a very deeply existential thing for, for me, like personally, it was like, I need to understand this. And then talking to different people in and out, more outside of the church, that way it really hit them very hard. It was like exactly like what they wanted to hear about. And then JT, I think I've mentioned this to you before, like m- my sister's favorite topic is the resurrection. Like that's right. her like, favorite doctrine. That's so right. when, she, whenever, yeah, yeah, exactly. So whenever <laughs> there's a sermon on that, she's like, you're going to, is your friend going to talk about the resurrection? I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Is he going to talk about me? No, not everything's about you, Kelly. I'm sorry. You know, so, so her two favorite topics are herself and the resurrection. So again, me too. Right. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it seems to me that a lot of the stuff we're looking at, like we do it in this like kind of like, you know, very like scholastic sort of way, but it does seem like the questions we're addressing, I do think really do hit what a lot of people are interested in in some sense. Yeah. Thinking how to popularize it. It's not everybody's gift, but if you got it, flaunt it. So Yeah. Right, so let's turn the tables on you here, uh, Dr. Mullins. Mm. Um, so, you know, here's an objection for you to think about, and you're going to know why we're asking you this question here in a second. Sometimes people think that analytic theologians are just unaware of the ontological difference between God and creatures, and, you know, analytic theologians treat God as if he's just another one among many creatures, just a very big creature, a very big item in the universe, and not being and unity and life itself as uh, the Bible seems to teach. So, Analytic theologians often are comically treat divine attributes like simplicity, so your favorite attribute, right, as if they're up for debate. So how do you respond to that sort of objection in analytic theology? I mean, for me personally, like, I always thought comedy was first, and then, like, truth was, like, secondary. So I'm very happy to, like, comically treat, like, simplicity like it is up for debate. Um, Because, again, comedy is what matters more. Like, uh, truth is of, like, only a secondary concern. So, you know... Um, and then like putting that aside, um, like I do think a lot of these things are up for debate. I mean, I, I like, cause I think one, like it's just demonstrably false that divine simplicity is taught in scripture because scripture really cares a great deal about God's accidental properties. They take those to be like part of his narrative identity forever and ever. Amen. Like I am the, like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is my name forever. He says that twice, uh, when he, when he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. And I'm like, okay, cool. So accidental properties kind of matter to God. He seems like he cares about those things. Simplicity says they're repugnant to, to God. So I'm like, ooh, okay, maybe there's a contradiction there. I don't know. Let's debate that. Let's figure that out. But again, I guess right. that would be to engage in comedy instead of like serious-minded like scholarship, which again is fine because I'm, I'm happy with that. But when I see these kind of objections, in my mind, I think it demonstrates just like a complete lack and like a complete unawareness of what's going on, A, in, in actual like, like broader Christian tradition, and then B, what's going on in, in real actual debates about the doctrine of God. So every model of God that I'm aware of is going to say God is the ultimate foundation of reality. And then they'll give some kind of like extension or some kind of like details of what that means and developing their doctrine of like, say, like a doctrine of creation out of nothing, or maybe like a doctrine of eternal creation, or maybe emanation, depending on like what model of God you affirm. Like nobody thinks that God is just like one item, like, you know, in the universe, like they just some creature or something. And nobody thinks that. And simplicity doesn't own the market on, on, on these sorts of claims. So when I see this kind of stuff, I just go, you just don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. There's this whole wide literature on the, on the nature of God. Come on in. Like, check it out. Read a little bit of it. See how it goes. I mean, that's usually kind of my take on it. But Yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, uh, I have some sympathies there. Um, it's never really been super clear to me. I mean, maybe it's been more clear to James. I'm not sure. Um, but what the complaint is wherein supposedly God is seen to be some creature among others. Because as you just said, I don't know of anybody who said, like, who says that that God's just some creature? God's an actual being, or be, being or thing 
It doesn't follow that he's a created being or thing or that he's a dependent being or thing. At least it doesn't seem to follow to me, although I know, you know, folks like Ed Fazer and so on might might uh, balk at that sort of claim. But I I mean, look, Ed's way, way smarter than me, so he, he could entirely be right. Uh, but at the very least, you know, uh, from my own sensibilities, I, I think I'm I don't know that I'm totally on board with rejecting all the things you want to reject, but I at least see that there's obvious academic space and theological space to ask the question, for sure. Yeah, I think there's space for it. And then also, I also think it's kind of biblical. But again, like I said earlier, I don't think scripture really matters because then we're doing analytic theology, so scripture has no role to play. Um, <laughs> yes, of course. But, but, you know, if I want to be biblical, then I want to be like, okay, well, the scripture only teaches divine temporality. It doesn't teach this doctrine of immutability. It certainly doesn't teach impassibility. But again, scripture, you know, it doesn't matter for analytic theology. But um, yeah, the final thing I guess I want to say is, here's one argument, though. See what you guys think of this. If God acquires the property of being the creator because he performs a new action, uh, such as creating a universe that he did not previously perform, that makes him a creature because he has acquired some kind of being because he's acquired a property. So what do you, like, I don't know, does that, like, strike you as plausible that if God creates and acquires the property of being the creator that he becomes a creature? James, what do you think? I'm shaking my head over here, No. I guess I'm not quite sure. I see the entailment between creating and becoming a creature. That seems contradictory. I, well, I kind of thought it was contradictory, too, when I saw the argument. So I'm not going to name the theologian who said it. Um, he's kind of famous in some circles. Um, but yeah, that's the argument is if God acquires the property of being the creator, then that entails that he's a creature. I can't spot what the argument's supposed to be because um, it does seem contradictory to me. But th- these are the kind of arguments I see, though. Maybe it's a God and abstract objects problem, like a bootstrapping problem, like... Uh God, so there's there's properties out there like being the creator that exist independently of God, but God's utterly asse and doesn't depend on anything, including the properties being the creator. And so that maybe in some sense that means he's, I mean, creature would have to be used in a different sort of term, but how about contingent being? That might be a better way to say it. So maybe there's an objection in the neighborhood there. I don't know. That's that's asking for a level of sophistication that I didn't see in the original form of the argument, which would be nice to say, though. So, yeah, well, I'll I'll leave that as an invitation to make it more sophisticated. (laughs) Which is something, sometimes some things analytic theologians do, actually, which is taking, you know, taking arguments, taking some things that are maybe not stated clearly or kind of incohate and and developing them in a much more rigorous and robust fashion. I think that's kind of one of the services, perhaps, that analytic theology has to the greater and wider theological guild, is being able to uh, to, to make things a bit more precise and, 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 and clear in order that they might be evaluated with greater clarity and, and depth. And here I think our volume might be helpful to whoever your interlocutor is. We have a uh, chapter by Lindsay Cleveland on God and Abstract Objects, which might be helpful to help fill out whatever the objection is supposed to be, because it is a great essay. That is a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to change the topic just slightly here. Uh, So there's a lot of different questions I get in on the show. And so there's this one that I keep getting. I don't know why this I keep getting this. So this is a common question is just how do you disagree well with your peers? And so I've thought a lot about this because like when I've been in different theological circles, like disagreements not always handled very well. And so like I've been in some like really like toxic theological environments. But in my experience, analytic theologians like generally seem to be like like, a lot easier to get along with. uh, And they're very easy to disagree with. Uh, whereas I don't always feel like that's the same in other places, but it doesn't seem to matter what country I'm in. Like if I'm in the US, if I'm in the UK, when I go to Germany, like I'm here in Finland right now, if I go to Italy, if I go to Slovakia, like you name it, like all these different countries I've been in, like I usually, when I'm, when I'm around a bunch of analytics, like it's a really healthy dialogue and they're really easy to get along with. And so I guess I kind of like, I'm kind of curious about two things. So like, does this actually first, like, does this fit your experience uh, of like analytic theologians when you hang around them? 
And then second, like, why do you think that is? Like, what is it about analytic theology that seems to kind of like foster this more healthy dialogue and more healthy disagreement? Interestingly enough, we, we were doing an interview yes, just yesterday and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, we got, uh, this question kind of came up in a different sort of way, but honestly, I think the, what I answered there is I see, sort of the same way I'll answer here, namely that, um, one of the cool thing, well, I think it's cool. One of the helpful things of, of the analytic philosophy tradition, as it's contemporary, as it's practiced in contemporary circles, is disagreement and debate uh, is expected. So I, f- so if you walk into a you know a conference proceeding of an analytic philosophy paper, somebody gets up there, they give their paper, and they're you know here's my treasured idea I just came up with. And the Q&A is not going to be filled with, hey, great paper, thanks for doing this or that. The, the Q&A will be, here's a thousand things that's wrong with what you just said. Please try and defend uh, your argument because I find it incoherent in any number of ways. And none of that is offensive. All of that is totally expected, par for the course. It's, it, it, it shows, it's a, it's, a, it's a collegial activity. It's an activity that says, I took your work seriously enough to sit here and think hard about it for 45 minutes on why it went wrong. And here's my, I'm trying to help you do a better job. Don't say something dumb. <laughs> here's a thousand ways your arguments went wrong. Please try and disabuse me of the things I think about what you, what you uh, said. Same thing with analytic theology. We approach our theological works typically in an analytic mode in the same sort of sensibilities as the analytic philosopher. Like, here's my theological idea. Here's, say, how I, you know, how I think maybe, here's a, here's a coherent model for the Trinity, or here's a coherent model for resurrection, or a coherent model, I think, of the Eucharist or whatever. Let me present it before you. And in fact, let me, along the way, make it maximally refutable, to borrow Tom McCall's term, to show you where I think all the weaknesses lie. And, ex- and I'm expecting you to poke holes exactly there. Like, here's where the problems are. And that way we can work on it together. Like, it's not me versus everybody else. It's like this communal activity where I present my work, you tell me what's wrong with it, and then we work on it together to improve it. And that way, you know, when the conference proceedings are done, we've argued the heck out of things, even maybe passionately, but then we go grab a bite to eat or something to drink because we're all on the same side. It's not, yeah, we don't, the analytic philosophy tradition, as far as I have been aware and have practiced it myself, is committed to a rigorous analysis of ideas. And if you come into your ideas and presentations of your ideas, knowing already it probably has a lot of flaws, then when somebody tells you it has a lot of flaws, that's of no surprise to you. It's just, it's kind of relieving to see where it's pointed out and and helpful. So, yeah. Yeah, just kind of echoing maybe some of the things that JT said there too, and and, and I, I agree, Ryan. This is something that I've seen as well, and, and and benefited from and appreciated. You know, being in conferences in around around the world, whether it's Germany or Scotland or, or elsewhere, and and being able to to talk and debate and have a good time and respect one another too seems like a fairly standard mo that i've experienced i don't know if everyone's experienced that same level of collegiality but i'm grateful that i have at least and i mean one sort of theory on on why this might be is that there there's a certain level of the certain level of vulnerability involved with being clear you know when you put an argument out there as jt is describing and you show the premises and you show the conclusions and you show all the places that it could go wrong you're being awfully vulnerable. You know, you're, you're, you're being kind of exposed there. And that takes a certain level of intellectual humility. But I think in doing so, when one's intellectually humble like that and, and open and vulnerable like so, 
um, then I think it it, it, it prevents uh, it prevents one from falling into a kind of divisiveness or defensiveness or sort of a let me make sure that no one sees any of the the errors that I might be making in my argument or my my paper what have you and just kind of puts forth a, a fair amount of openness which I think is then kind of fosters this sort of like collaborative kind of engagement with one another um, in order to I don't know be on a common task of trying to pursue a good way, the right way, a healthy way of looking at whatever topic is under consideration. So it might be there's something to the method that actually encourages a kind of intellectual humility, maybe kind of contrary to one's uh, expectation, given one's caricature of analytic philosophy or analytic theology. Yeah, well said, well said. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Really appreciate it. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on classical theism and analytic theology. 